So good to see everyone here today, our membership and visitors alike, and we're so thankful for each and every one that's come our way, and we'd like to, in fact, make a special statement. In as much as, of course, it's the first day of this year, certainly as well the first Sunday of this year, may we each make a commitment today, if we haven't already, to always devote and commit our life to the service of Him and to be present at every single service that health will permit us to be present at. There will be no better way to keep our feet grounded and anchored in those things of truth. Today, as you perhaps have already noted, the lesson has a bit of an unusual title, but one I hope it will make a very memorable lesson set there off for you and me. Esau, Beans and Tears. In a moment, we're going to be reflecting on Hebrews chapter number 12, from which Brother John read a moment ago, but you might start with me by revisiting Genesis 25. We'll be going back to that rather interesting Old Testament record, and in so doing, to set before ourselves some very needed and valuable lessons to help us serve the Lord our God. These introductory comments, I hope, will motivate us and move us on our way. As you know, January the 1st this year happens to fall on Sunday, and you might think about for a moment, that's not going to happen again until 2022. You and I don't know what may happen in those intervening years, but just consider for a moment the fact that you and I serve a God who is in control of all the features and affairs of time because He lives outside the bounds and restrictions of time. As you and I treasure the Word of God... Isn't it great that we can always revisit and affirm a very powerful standard that never changes? It'll be just as needful today as it was last year, and it'll be just as pressing and pertinent this year as it has ever been, of course, in the past. May you and I commit ourselves to a right dividing of it and an ongoing study of it, and let's do that today as we revisit a character of the Old Testament, a man named Esau. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the treasure of the Word of God is often housed in its wonderful characters. Those who in many cases set before us wonderful expositions of faithfulness, but there's also the reality that we have the record of some of their mistakes. Today, as you think about certain characters of the Bible who it seems were in rather difficult positions in terms of their own families... If I were to mention the children of Abraham, you'd first think of Isaac, wouldn't you? But there was also Ishmael. If I were to mention the children of Isaac, you and I might first think Jacob, but there was Esau. And of course, that listing could continue throughout the Word of God as well. But sometimes those black sheep, if you please, teach us some great things. Esau's life is a life, quite frankly, that has so much disfavor about it. In fact, that's why I chose the title. You likely could immediately think, when you think Esau, you think beans and tears. You don't think that when you think Jacob. You think of patriarch. You think father of the tribes of Israel. You think the one through whom the Christ child came. But you don't think that when you think Esau. Let's study about Esau today. And in so doing, appreciate in his life some things that were colossal mistakes. Blunders of the highest order. And maybe you and I can appreciate the wisdom of not making that same mistake. To do that, let's set our journey by first looking at the history. We'll perhaps be brief in this overview, but in Genesis 25, you'll find the following set of records. 
Isaac was 40 years old when he married a lovely woman named Rebecca. And you may remember that he and she were distant kin, of course. And as they married, you remember that initially she was barren. Rebecca was unable to have any children. Twenty years would pass before she would bear Jacob and Esau. Now, as Isaac, as those periods of barrenness proceeded, we remember that, of course, in that day and time, it was a serious thing, and it was a loving privilege for a husband and a wife to bear children so that they could carry on the namesake of the Father, and so that they could, of course, be those which would hopefully be in the blessed line of that great anointed one to come. But again, Isaac and Rebekah were barren. Year after year passed, and no children she never even conceived. And then, you notice that Isaac entreated God. He went to the Heavenly Father in earnestness and in prayer, and you notice shortly thereafter she became pregnant. However, as the pregnancy proceeded, there appeared to be something unusual about it. It appeared not to be a normal pregnancy. The children were struggling within her. And could I invite you to notice what she did? In Genesis chapter 25, it says, verse 22, The children struggled within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca seemingly appreciated that the pregnancy wasn't proceeding as per the normal. As the children struggled, she said, Why is it this way? And it says in verse number 22, she inquired of God. Isn't it interesting that Jacob, of course, or rather uh, Isaac had approached God previously in light of her barrenness, and now she approaches God in light of the apparent difficulty of the pregnancy. Might you and I for a moment notice God's reply. Verse number 23, The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. God had some very interesting things to say to Rebekah. In light of that which was in her womb, there were two. And you'll notice that two nations, it'll not just be two minimal peoples, it'll not just be two babies, if you please. Two nations there are going to be two great numbers of peoples flow from the bowels, if you please, of Rebekah. But amazingly enough, he said, the elder shall serve the younger. As you and I reflect upon that, notice how it proceeds. The chapter proceeds rather quickly to notice time passes and the boys grow up. Esau, we're told, is a skillful hunter. He apparently is very skilled, very adept at the things that take place in the field. And not only that, you'll notice particularly verse number 24 and 25. It says that the older Esau came out red like a hairy garment. However, the other came out as well, Jacob. And do you notice with me, verse number 26... After that his brother came out, his hand took hold on Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob. Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob a plain man dwelling in tents. We just noted a moment ago that Esau, apparently a man that preferred the outdoors, he was a skilled hunter, but on the other hand, Jacob, 
says was a plain man. The actual Hebrew word means to be quiet, to be reserved. He apparently preferred the indoors. And you'll notice as that verse closes, it says he dwelled in tents. He didn't like dwelling outside like perhaps those that would go on distant, long-standing hunting trips. It is with all that to be noted. The day came. Again, an amount of time passes. Verse number 27, I'm sorry, 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And at this point, we note the seeds of problem. The seeds of difficulty. The parents had favorites. Dad liked the older one. He liked Esau. But on the other hand, mother's favorite was Jacob. And that degree of favoritism, that choice, if you please, was going to plant in those circumstances some very bad seed. At that point, notice verse 29. It says, Jacob sawed pottage. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what shall it profit? Shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. As I mentioned a moment ago, the mere mention of the name Esau likely brings this record to the top of our mind. But notice how we close that slide. The day came. Esau came in from the field. Likely he had been working. The text doesn't actually say... But as he returned, it says that he was faint. The Hebrew word means he was exhausted. He was tired. You and I know what it's like to be tired from a hard, difficult day of physical labor. And yet as he came, Jacob, it says, had sodden some pottage. And that word sod means to boil. Jacob had fixed some food. Jacob had prepared this pottage. Later, you'll notice in verse number 34, we're told about bread and pottage of lentils. So we know it was basically a bowl of beans. He had prepared some stew that had a lot of bean quality to it. And as Esau came back, he was hungry and he spied it. No doubt it smelled good and he wanted some. Notice again the wording in verse number 30. Esau, with a a bit of aggressiveness, says, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. He gave an order to his brother. Feed me with that which you've prepared. You begin to notice, though, immediately that things take a rather interesting turn. Jacob had something to reply. Verse 31, rather briefly, says, Sell me this day thy birthright. I'll give you a bowl of beans if you'll sell your birthright to me. I'll be happy to feed you with all this which I have if only you will sell me that birthright. It doesn't take much to appreciate the fact that the two boys esteemed that birthright very differently. Esau apparently didn't think much of it. Sold it for a bowl of beans. 
But Jacob was so very enamored by it. He highly respected it. He understood a bit more about the nature of what it meant. In fact, I've tried to highlight for you just very briefly. Of course, this was in the day of the patriarchal era. And so that birthright carried some rather interesting things, not the least of which it carried with it, of course, physical benefit and blessing. The older boy got a double portion of the physical inheritance. So the one that has that birthright would have gotten a greater consideration or amount, but that isn't all. This again predated the law of Moses, and so there was priesthood considerations. The chief of the family often functioned in a role that somewhat mirrored that of a priest. The one carrying the birthright likely would have enjoyed that blessing. But not only that, consider the final great influence that came with the one who is the head of the family. Have you ever thought, stopped to think about it this way? You and I are so often those who speak about the children of Israel. Children of Israel. Israel was Jacob, so we talk about the children of Jacob. How often do we ever talk about the children of Esau? And yet, by virtue of the fact that he was the older, one might have thought Abraham, Isaac, Esau. But it isn't that way. Because Esau despised his birthright. He gave it up, allowed Jacob to purchase it for what was so little and so meager. As we close that slide and continue the journey, we rather rapidly appreciate the following as well. Because having looked at those features, the nature of the birthright and Esau's selling of it, we remember, of course, later by trickery, the blessing was taken from him too. We may have more to say about that a bit later in the lesson, but let's take this initial point to observe some lessons, some applications that I suspect can be very meaningful to all of us. Lesson number one, the omniscience of God. Now, that's just a word that means the all-knowing character and capability of God. He knows everything. We highlighted it earlier, but would you revisit with me that response that God gave to Rebekah? Two nations are in your womb. Now, that birth was not going to happen for several months. How did God know there were two nations in her womb? How did God know she had twins? And how did she know that throughout the passing of the years, the descendants of those twins would become two great nations? And how did God know that the elder would serve the younger? It did turn out that way. But you and I know that God knows. Making that application to you and me today, we've just begun a new year. We're only a few hours into it at this point. What will February the 1st of this year bring? God knows. What about June 1st? October 1st? Our God knows completely, thoroughly, and absolutely, but let's not leave it so abstractly. What about your life and mine? What about Randy Bybee, me, on February the 1st? God already knows. It isn't concealed or hidden from Him in any way. And put your name in that blank. What about you on June 1st? Will you still be faithful? In fact, it seems that's one of the greatest considerations here, that it really is such an humbling thought. God already knows whether you and I will be faithful this year or not. 
He knows whether you'll be dedicated and devoted to the things of truth. Or He knows that perhaps come later in the year you will slide or I will slide away from faithfulness. God knows that already. May I say that you and I should be committed to understand that this character perhaps leads us to one final thought. God already knows whether you and I will be eternally saved or not. He knows whether I'm going to go to heaven or hell. He knows the same for you. He knows whether you and I are going to die in the faith or not. Now may I say, the fact He knows that does not mean that He causes it one way or the other. He implores and He invites and He encourages, but He leaves the decision to me and He leaves it to you. Are you going to die in faith or are you going to die lost? That decision is yours and mine, but the omniscience of God is such that He already knows what that answer is. I'm reminded, aren't you, about the encouragement of words like Paul, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day, 2 Timothy 1.12. Later in that same book, Paul would say, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. May you and I allow nothing to deter us from being in that rank. May you and I also be able to say, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. What about then your eternal consideration? God already knows whether you're going to be saved or lost, but He leaves a decision to you and me. The devil wants you to be lost. God wants you to be saved. You and I cast the deciding vote. It's a tie between God and the devil. You and I have the privilege, the luxury, yea, the great honor of casting the winning vote. Will you vote for the Lord or will you vote for the devil? The year 2017 stands before us with all of its possibility and all of its potential, the horizon of goodness that's before us. May the commitment swell within us to the point that we will serve the Lord no matter what, being instant in season and out of season in such a way that you and I will always recognize the blessedness and the contentment that comes from knowing that we're saved. Lesson number two. As you think about... Esau, isn't it true that one of the things that leaps first to mind is his short-sightedness? Now ponder with me the development of the moment. He comes in from the field and he's weary and he's tired. The pottage that Jacob's fixing smells so good. But there's a period of time, maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's ten minutes, at least there's some passage of time in which he's got a decision to make. Jacob has said, sell me the birthright. Esau's got to make a decision. Do I sell it in exchange for the beans or do I not? What went through his mind at the time he made the decision? May I submit to you it was a very short-sighted set of thoughts apparently. Let's develop it like this. In verse number 34, as we close that chapter again it says, Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Aren't you amazed at the shortness, the brevity with which the description is given about how Esau treated the birthright? He sat down and ate the beans and the bread, and it says he got up and went his way. 
appears to be no reflection on the seriousness of what he had done, no long-lasting considerations of the urgency of the moment. He just got up and went his way. No wonder the chapter closes by saying he despised his birthright. It should have been a great honor to have been the older son. It carried with it, as we noted earlier, some rather remarkable blessings and benefits, and yet they meant so little to Esau. He despised it. As you and I developed that more thoroughly, isn't it true that he exchanged so very much for so very little? He exchanged so very much. The family legacy, double portion of the inheritance, the lineage of the one that would lead to the Christ child, he, he gave it all up for some bread and beans. Now, none of us are, of course, taking anything for granted. We appreciate the physical blessings of what we enjoy each day. But isn't it true that he gave up so very much for so little? In fact, as we look at those things, might I ask you and I to make that application to ourselves? It is entirely possible that you and I, too, can easily make the same mistake Esau made. Now, it may not be a bowl of beans and it may not be a birthright. But if we live for the moment, for the here and now, ignoring the distant future, ignoring, in fact, that matter leading to a fullness and the rightness in life, and certainly ignoring that which is, relates to eternity, how are we any better than Esau? We make the same mistake he made. To live for the moment, as you can see, is a colossal blunder. Isn't it true that Jesus all throughout His preaching, and yea, those other New Testament writers, they urge us to ever be of a position to understand that what transpires in this life is only but temporary, and yet eternity is forever. Once you and I pass from the scenes of this life, there's no changing anything. If we've died in the Lord, or if we haven't, our fate is sealed. There's not the slightest hint anywhere in the Bible that there's a second chance to repair, to fix, to change, to undo anything. That rich man in Luke 16, after he'd passed from this life, he was told there's a great goal fixed here. They can't pass to here and you can't pass to there. This life has for us a powerful sense of priority. And may we never sell something so great like our soul for so little like a momentary sin. A momentary pleasure that isn't right. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 8 verses 36 and 37, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He prefaced that by saying, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so, as you and I appreciate that, may we not lose sight of the fact there is momentary pleasure in sin. There is. We have record of that, of course, in Hebrews 11. Speaking of Moses, isn't it true that here was one who had the opportunity to advantage himself of all the things that life in Egypt had to offer? He was, after all, Pharaoh's daughter. I'm sorry, Pharaoh, the, the, daughter of, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
And it was also the case then that in that circumstance he had opportunity for the finest of all the things that Egypt had to offer. And yet, he chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. For how long? For a season. The issues of life are such that Satan ensures that temptation looks enticing. And it may well offer a moment of fun, a moment of enjoyment, a moment of allurement or enticement. But the aftermath is tragic. The aftermath is phenomenally bad. Esau, in fact, reminds us to think carefully about that. What about those words that you and I might be tempted to speak or those places we might be tempted to frequent, those particular relationships we might be tempted to develop? If those aren't wholesome and good, they may offer a great deal of enjoyment or enticement or fun. But what about the aftermath? Are we making the same mistake as Esau to sell basically something that's worth so much for that which is so little? You'll notice one more time as you look at these additional verses. It is true that when it comes to temptation and it comes to those matters of allurement, though they're bad, Satan makes them appear so very enticing. But remember, he is a liar. He does not tell the truth. He has not told the truth. Isn't it true that in John 8, 44, Jesus said from the very beginning He is a liar? And we have that record in Genesis 3 of Him when He lied to Eve. And of course, the sentence of death and the difficulties that came. May I suggest to each of us, Esau despised what was worth so much. There are certain things in your life and mine that are worth so much. Do you value the church? Do you value the Bible? What about your spouse? Do you value those things ultimately that are worth eternally so very much? And yet, often we exchange them for what amounts to nearly nothing. Shame on us. Isn't it true that Esau is a timeless example of one who did that very thing? He rose up and went his way thinking so little of what he had just sold. What about lesson number three? In addition to these two, may I submit yet another one that helps us appreciate some things that can benefit us as we reflect on Esau. Lesson number three, why don't we cast a more notable light on that birthright? We've already highlighted in passing some of the features and blessings that went with it, but I'd like you to think about one other thing. As you come to the New Testament with me and look at Matthew chapter 1 as well as Luke chapter 3, there are genealogies listed and presented. And in those genealogies, of course, it leads to Jesus. In each instance, as you'll notice, it reads Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth. Esau's not in that list. Esau's not in either one of them. Because he willfully chose to sell that which was so valuable and vital for what was only a momentary pleasure. The birthright was of such great value. Look with me at some of these things. As you think about his selling of it, the New Testament uses a very special word to describe him. I'd like you to note with me what that word is. Perhaps it's a word that you and I don't think of in that context. Back to Hebrews chapter number 12. 
Beginning in verse number 16, it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And there was that word. It was an adjective, and it says Esau was a profane person. It may well be you and I think of a profane person as one who is uncouth, one who goes around cursing, one who in fact speaks in a very, very bad, sinister way. Esau is said to be profane. Now what made him profane? The New Testament explains it. It says, for one morsel of meat, for one mess of food, he sold that birthright. That made him profane. My, you and I develop it this way. That word profane then literally has behind it the thought of godlessness, ungodliness, worldliness. It's entirely possible then for any of us to be profane if we esteem the things of this world more so than those things of God. Are you profane? Am I? If we are, we make the same mistake that Esau made. It might well be then in light of that, that that final comment, Jesus Christ. There's nothing more valuable than He. How highly do you esteem Him and how highly do I esteem Him? We have lifted high as we've sung today these songs of adoration and praise to Him. May that be a constant and guiding theme throughout every day of our life as we honor the One who died for us and the church that He purchased and the hope of heaven that He makes possible and the gospel message that tells and speaks of Him. Isn't it true that birthright indicates just how valuable that that should have been to Esau, but it wasn't? Maybe one final lesson, and the lesson will be yours. To think about these things brings me to the second part of the title. Remember Esau, beans and tears. And likely when we think of Esau, we so quickly think about what he did selling his birthright for that bowl of pottage. But you notice the Hebrew writer mentioned something else. I'd ask you to notice it again. Verse 17 of Hebrews 12. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing. You see, many years later, you and I remember that also Jacob, together with the help of his mother, tricked Esau out of the blessing as well. Isaac, his father, of course, was basically blind and he wasn't able to discern and to tell, but he called Esau and said, Go out and kill that meat and fix that venison that I love so much and I'll bless you. And Rebekah overheard that and she told Jacob, You go out and take a goat and you bring it in. I'll fix it the way your dad likes and you go in and get the blessing. Now, of course, Jacob was quick to say, but I don't sound like Esau, and I don't smell like Esau, and I don't feel like Esau. Jacob seemingly understood it's not going to be that easy to fool Dad. But Rebecca was insistent. She said, you take care of it. We will fix everything up, and they did. They put a, a hide, if you please, on Esau so that he felt hairy. Ultimately, remember, Jacob was such that as that took place, he received the blessing. But there's to be something noted. 
you remember how that developed in that after Isaac had blessed Jacob, Jacob went out and it wasn't but just a few moments when it seems Esau came in with excitement and said, Dad, I'm ready. I've got the things that you wanted. I want, I'm ready to receive that blessing. And then you remember it says that Isaac began to tremble. But I've already given the blessing. Your brother came in and took it. Now you and I might begin to notice something very interesting. That blessing was something that once given, it could never be repealed. Notice that Isaac didn't say, Okay, I will take back the blessing from Esau, from Jacob and give it to you. That was not possible. The way that blessing worked is once it was uttered, the appreciations and thoroughness of it, it was not undoable. It now belonged to Jacob. You might notice, though, how that Esau responded. It says he wept bitterly. He cried. Look at the way the Hebrew writer states it. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Oh, how Esau cried. When he realized the birthright was gone because he sold it for so little and now the blessing was taken from him by deception, he was left out. Tears didn't change it though. Doesn't that teach us a valuable lesson? Sometimes the mistakes of our life may lead to some tears on our part, but the tears won't change what we did. We may be sorrowful for the mistakes and we may regret very sorely we did it. How much wiser would it be to think about all that up front and not make the mistake to start with? I'm sure if Esau could have gone back, he would have easily changed. He would never have sold that birthright. And he would never have allowed the changes to take place whereby the deception occurred. But it was too late then. Let's close that slide by noting, though those tears were bitter, they do teach us a valiant lesson to live wisely, to understand that in the distant future we appreciate that there is a day of judgment coming and the greatest wisdom of all is to live in such a way that all shall be well that day. What transpires here is so minimal compared to that. Are you a faithful Christian this morning? If you're not, there will be no better way to start 2017 than to allow your name to be placed in the faithful ranks of the book of life and that it might continue there unremoved and unerased throughout the remainder of your days upon this earth. If this very day we could be of assistance to you, Esau stands loudly and clearly as one who shouts, Don't let beans and tears deter you from eternity in heaven. Don't look only at the here and now. Live wisely so that your life will be the proper reflection of truth and faithfulness and that you shall one day be able to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If there will be someone in the audience who's never rendered initial obedience to the gospel's call of invitation, you realize that Jesus Himself says you must believe Him to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as a son of God, and you must be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that today, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a Christian, but perhaps in the months and the days and maybe even the years of time as they have passed, 
it's brought you to a station in life when you now perhaps see in Esau some of yourself. That he too, such that you've begun to make at least in principle some of the mistakes that he made, realize that his tears wasn't able to change the fact of what was done. The guilt of sin can be removed. The consequences may still be with you, but it's guilt you can take away because the blood of Christ will remove it. Today, if you'd love to come back to your first love, we'd be delighted to encourage you, to assist you upon your repentance and confession of those errors known publicly. We'll pray to God on your behalf, and He has promised, 1 John 1, verses 7 through 10, to forgive. If today there would be anyone in that position, we would encourage you, we'd invite you, we'd urge you to come and do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.